Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Patricia Farah. She's Emeritus Fellow of Clara College, where she was formerly senior tutor and past president of the British Society for the History of Science. But more importantly for our purposes today, she's author of Life After Gravity, Isaac Newton's London Career, which is her second book on Isaac Newton, though she demurs being called a Newtonian expert. Patricia Farah, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me on. So let's begin uh, with, I think, probably first, um, uh, who was Isaac Newton when he decided to leave for London? You have a wonderful list of facts at the beginning of the book, and one of them is, and I guess I should have known this, is that Isaac Newton lived in London for longer than he lived in Cambridge. Absolutely. uh, As you make abundantly clear, that London period has been a source of great anxiety to historians and Newtonian devotees ever since? Well, the conventional image of Isaac Newton is that he was a reclusive professor at Cambridge. He was at Cambridge when he wrote his great book on gravity, which is called The Principia, uh, in 1687. Uh, He was also a Cambridge undergraduate when he supposedly escaped the plague. This was during the 17th century lockdown, he went back to his country cottage in Lincolnshire, and that was when he supposedly sat under the apple tree and carried out all his experiments on optics and also started work on the mathematical system called calculus. And I think Isaac Newton is revered by scientists. He's a sort of semi-god to them. And they like to think of him almost as a saint-like figure, a secular saint, an absolute genius who floats above ordinary humanity. And there's lots of stories about him, his absent-mindedness, his interest in alchemy, uh, his rather bad temper, but also his his sort of intellectual purity and his distance from the conflicts of the real world. And the last 31 years, when he lived in London, reveal a very different aspect of Isaac Newton. And I think if you're a scientist, you don't want to think about that too much because it brings Newton down to an ordinary level. And he shows that in some ways, he wasn't just ordinary, in some ways he was quite unpleasant. And I think people like to build up an image of their hero and they don't like to see it attacked. Yeah, I'm feeling sidetracked here, but I'm struck by reading the book, something I guess I, I knew, but how in some ways Newton, one of the legacies of Newton was to stunt British science uh, by an over, I mean, it wasn't just the fact that they rejected Leibniz's ways of doing the calculus. It was that in some ways, anything that went against Newton, uh, he was built on such a high pedestal, the pedestal got in the way of a lot of people trying to move forward. Um, I think... Well, I, you say moving forward. I think you only move forward in time. I don't. I don't think there is that's, a that's straight ver- route down to the truth. A very but, appropriate philosophical point. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, for example, um, he did have this huge row with Leibniz, the German philosopher and mathematician, about which one of them invented calculus first. And they both got incredibly irate about it, and so did their followers right through down to the 20th century. People got incensed about that. So Isaac Newton was president of the Royal Society, so he decided he was going to set up a committee of the Royal Society to decide who was first, Newton or Leibniz. And of course, he put all his mates into the committee and surprise, surprise, it was a complete whitewashed job. And Newton was uh, uh, certified by the Royal Society or endorsed by the Royal Society for having been the first one to discover calculus. So when Newton, uh, so Newton moves to London in in what year? 1696. Um, Who is he? Uh, by this time. Principia has been a runaway publishing success? No, not exactly. Uh, There weren't very many copies published. It was very, very successful amongst eminent mathematicians in universities across Europe. They recognised that this was a really brilliant, a very innovative piece of work. It was by no means accepted as the truth, either here or over in Europe. So it wasn't a runaway success. On the other hand, he was already very famous as being a brilliant mathematician. He was a very distinguished professor at Cambridge University, and he was, but he was not yet the national hero that we know him to be and that he came in, became in the 18th century. So, for example, the story about the apple just didn't exist. That mm-hmm. nobody knew about the apple story until the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's uh, go back a bit. I, I wanted to get at what uh, the Stanford historian Sam Weinberg refers to as sourcing, um, identifying and assessing um, documents for their bias and point of view. You have uh, something at the heart of an unusual image at the heart of your book. Um, listeners are going to believe that I've done this on purpose. Uh, we just talked with John Heilbronn last week about the painting, uh, which has a ghost of Galileo in it. And now we're going to be talking about Hogarth's conversation piece, uh, which has a ghost of Newton in it, or I should say a bust of Newton and many other connections to this new, new Newton's London life. So could you describe the painting? Uh, hopefully by this time, you'll, uh, listeners should be able to go to the website of Historically Thinking and look under the episode and find the, the picture that we're talking about. So you follow yes. along. Yes. Uh, well, I use my picture mainly as a sort of biographical experiment. I wanted to think of different ways of presenting the story of Isaac Newton. And I also wanted my book to be very, very interdisciplinary. I'm fed up with history of science books being put on the shelves with all the other science books. And I wanted to prove uh, the truth of what historians of science have been saying for decades, that the history of science is about the history of everything. So in my book, I've got a play by John Dryden, one of uh, Britain's most famous playwrights, and I've got a picture by William Hogarth, and they are both absolutely central to my book. Uh, this picture is um, it's quite big. It's almost square. It's roughly roughly four feet square. It's uh, by Hogarth. It's one of what was called his conversation pieces. He excelled at painting groups of people inside ordinary houses having conversations. And all his pictures are very complex. They have lots of amb- ambiguities in them. And like a lot of his pictures, this particular one has several Newtonian references. So for one thing, it's what it shows when you look at it is you see a very elegant, 
uh, early 18th century drawing room with portraits on the walls, very splendidly dressed, obviously, so aristocratic audience of men and women and children. And almost half the picture is given over to a small stage. It's a, a makeshift stage inside the drawing room. And it's got four small children on it who are all dressed up and they're acting a play. So in a way, it's a play within a play. When you look at the picture, you're looking at something, a scene that Hogarth has put in a frame. And 18th century people all acted parts. They, they all had a social mask. And you can see all the aristocrats, all the people in the audience, bending and bowing and scraping and conversing. And these four children arranged in a perfectly symmetrical mathematical rectangle on the stage. And there's a bust of Isaac Newton on the mantelpiece, and he's staring out across the vast empty space above the heads of the people down in the room. And the more you look at the picture, the more you realise how strongly Newtonian references are interlaced within it. So, for example, right at the middle at the front, uh, there's a woman who's the royal governess, and she's talking to her daughter. She's bending down and telling her daughter to pick up her fan which has fallen through the power of Newtonian gravity. And then when you look at the stage, right sort of hidden in the back, you have to look pretty closely, there's a man peering into his notebook, this very short-sighted man. He's the play's prompter, but he is also a man called John Desaguliers, who was one of Newton's major promoters and his experimental uh, assistant at the Royal Society. So the more you look at the picture the more you see it is to do with Newton. And I was also particularly interested by the play itself. It's John Dryden, the Indian emperor. When he wrote it in the middle of the 17th century, English audiences loved it because it showed the Spaniards as being very cruel and despotic when they went over to the Americas and uh, tried to conquer the country and also brought back lots of gold to Spain. And this play was revived in the early 18th century. And to my surprise, I found that none of the English literature people have really written about this revival. Because, of course, the play was about the Spaniards and what they were doing in, in the Americas. But actually, at this time, by the early 18th century, uh, British people were in Africa and they were involved in the international slave, slave trade. And they were digging up gold that was being shipped over to London and the gold was uh, was being used in the coins, and Isaac Newton was head of the mint. So that's another sort of more indirect way that the play does refer to Newton. And I, so, so I use this picture as a way of exploring unfamiliar facets of Newton's life. Mm. It's, not so, it's not so much that I've discovered anything radically new about Newton because loads of expert historians have been trawling the archives for decades and that's what I mean when I say I'm not a Newtonian expert yeah. uh, but on the other hand what I have done is reinterpret the facts that there are and tell a completely different story so we'll be back to that 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 conversation piece in a little bit so that's one very rich complex um, source um, speaking of the archives um, Newton is a historian's dream in one way. Oh, well, at least actually we should say about John Conduit. John Conduit and his great gift to future generations of historians. Uh, and also the problems that come with 
with a wealth of sources. <laughs> okay, so so John John Conduit, his pictures on the wall in the Hogarth painting. It was his drawing room. He commissioned Hogarth to paint the picture. He paid for the picture, and he was married to Isaac Newton's niece. Uh, it was a, a woman called Catherine Barton, who was very beautiful. She was the toast of the Kit Kat Club, and. And uh, before they were married, um, Catherine Barton lived with Newton and she basically she acted as his housekeeper in London. And then even after she married, uh, John Conduit and Catherine Barton remained very close to Newton. They looked after him, particularly when he was getting older um, and they were at his bedside when he died. And when Newton did die, Conduit appointed himself the guardian of Isaac Newton's memory. Uh, so he... Uh, the couple inherited all of Newton's wealth. He was pretty rich by the time he died. And Conduit managed to fend off all the relatives who suddenly popped up out of the woodwork, claiming that Newton had promised them all sorts of gifts. He managed to ward them off by saying he would take over all um, every, everything to do with the will, every, all the financial liabilities of running the mint. He would take those over, and in exchange, he inherited all of Newton's manuscripts, and there were boxes and boxes and boxes of manuscripts. And paper then was much more expensive than it is now, and people were very economical with it. So what Newton would quite often do, he'd write a letter, say, um, and then sort of put it on one side and go off and do something else. And then perhaps 20 or 30 years later, he'd had some idea in his head, and he'd pick up the old letter, and he'd scribble something on the back, or else even on the same page as the letter. And the trouble was nothing is dated. So it's very, very difficult to tell the exact order. So you could be reading some complicated calculation about how to transform one form of currency into another, and something suddenly you'd be interrupted and there'd be a little drawing of Solomon's temple and a discussion about the Bible. And it's all mixed up together. So it's quite difficult to sort all that out. And John Condit did an absolutely wonderful job of that. He sorted out all the theological manuscripts, of which there were a lot, and all the uh, manuscripts about ancient chronology, about the timetables of Egyptian and ancient dynasties. He sorted those all out and published them in two books after Newton died. He also started compiling a biography of Newton. And he wrote to all of Newton's colleagues and he asked for nice comments. And of course, after everybody, after somebody's died, everybody only has nice things to say. And you can see successive versions of the biography that he wrote. And as he went on, it got more and more flattering and all the sort of rather sort of, uh, not so flattering anecdotes got left out. And it became quite a hagiography. He never published it, but there are several manuscript versions of it. And he is responsible for recording the apple tree story. About five years before Newton died, he seems to have told it to at least four different people. And Conduit wrote it in this biography, and then it got picked up by a French biographer a century later. So Conduit um, preserves. He also then, he also does, if, if I'm right, he keeps cert keeps certain things from getting out, correct? Mm -hmm. So the... The, I, I remember, it, and I think it's in Freeman Dyson's first book, Disturbing the Universe, he describes being an undergraduate at Cambridge in 42, uh, when Keynes gives a lecture on Newton's alchemical um, manuscripts, and everyone's 
horrified and shocked that this that these even exist. So there was there have been over the centuries things have sort of dropped from this massive repository of scribblings. Things have sort of I wouldn't say leaked out, avalanched out. <laughs> no, no, no. So, 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 what happened after Newton's death? All these boxes of manuscripts, um, all the ones that Conduit didn't use, they all went down to some distant relatives, um, and they were kept in some stately home. Mm. And then, from time to time during the nineteenth century, Newtonian scientists would go down and they'd sift through all the papers and they'd fish out all the stuff on optics and all the stuff on maths. And whenever they saw anything about alchemy or religion, they'd put it back in the box because mm. they didn't want to know about that. And then in the 1930s, this family fell on rather hard times. So they decided they were going to auction off all the remaining manuscripts. And Maynard Keynes, the Cambridge economist, was there. And so was a man called Yehuda, who was a Palestinian as it then was, a Palestinian historian. And Yehuda brought up all the religious manuscripts, so they're now all in Jerusalem. And Hmm. Maynard Keynes brought up all the alchemical manuscripts, so they're now in King's College, not Trinity College, King's College in Cambridge. And then the um, anniversary, the the centenary of Newton's birth was delayed because of the war. It should Hmm. have been in 1942, but it was delayed till after the war. And Keynes gave a very, very famous speech in which he said Isaac Newton was something like the last sorcerer. He looked out on the universe with the eyes of the Babylonians um, and the Magi who had become before him. And people were absolutely, absolutely shocked by this idea. But he was right. I mean, you... Isaac knew not anybody. You only inherit from the past. You don't foresee the future. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get uh, back to the, the the rest of the book. Um, so when uh, Newton moved from Cambridge to London, um, uh, why was he leaving and what was he uh, what was he moving towards in London? What was what was attractive about London? And, but what also was he like sort of why was he in a certain sense, uh, you make it clear he was rejecting Cambridge. Um, Yes, the exact reason um, isn't totally clear. He had been trying to leave Cambridge for several years before he actually managed it. He'd been looking around for jobs. He had tried to get a position as a provost of King's College, but King's College didn't want him. Uh, He just had some, some sort of mental breakdown, what we would call a mental breakdown, which seems to have been precipitated by the departure of a young Swiss mathematician called Fatio de Dullier, with whom he was very friendly. It was a combination of circumstances, and he had been looking for a while, and it was his friend, the Earl of Halifax, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and he was a very, very influential man, and he found Isaac Newton a job as Warden of the Mint. And he wrote to Newton and said, look, I've found this really nice job for you. It's a bit of a sinecure. You don't have to do much work. You get a nice fat salary, far more than you get as Lucasian professor. And within a few weeks, Newton had packed up everything in Cambridge, disappeared down to London, and scarcely went back to Cambridge ever again afterwards. So what was uh, what did it mean to be warden of the mint? Well, the... There was there were two senior positions at the mint. One was the master of the mint, and one was uh, the warden, who was actually the person who did all the work. And when Newton got uh, got to the mint, he arrived there. He decided he was going to reform it and turn it round. He'd already been involved 
in some financial discussions because being at the Mint wasn't just a question of making coins. It was also a position that was integral to deciding Britain's economic policies. So in modern terms, it's more or less equivalent to being governor of the Bank of England, although I'm not quite sure what the American... Chairman of the Federal Reserve. Okay. So before he'd left Cambridge, um, he had been consulted about what to do about the currency. The currency was in complete and utter chaos. One of the key points is money then was different from how it is now. If you have a coin now or if you have a dollar bill um, or a 50-cent piece, it doesn't actually, the metal that's in the coin or the paper doesn't actually represent any value in itself. But back in Newton's day, the coins were made of silver and some of them were made of gold. And the idea was that the value of the coin, if you melted it down, was the same as what the coin was representing. And over the centuries, but it was getting worse and worse and worse, people called clippers were scraping little edges off the coins and then getting all the slivers of silver and melting them down into bullion and selling them, making a lot of money out of it. But in the meantime, the currency was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and it really wasn't worth anything. So this is Uh, um, actually, and if you look at some medieval coin hoards, uh, I think there used to be estimates of how long these things have been in circulation based on how small they've gotten. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, they they found a bag. They found a bag of coins that someone in a great panic had stuffed under the floorboards, presumably during some sort of emergency. And they weighed the silver coins, and it was something I can't remember exactly, but it was something like two thirds the weight of what oh. it should have been. And so it got to the stage people were going round to the shops with little scales. Nobody would trust anybody. And the, Newton's first job was to call in all the coins in the country, melt them all down, and then reissue them with a milled edge so round the rim so that it was more difficult um, to forge them. And that was uh, the first thing that he was told to do. Is that the little the one with the um, – so on the American Quarter, I have, to, I, have to, I have to take a look. I don't have one in my pocket. But I used to – I show this to students because it has a, a sort of a, ri, um, a serrated edge almost. Yes. If you look very close. And that's the milled edge that is – Newton is not – so he, uh, he, if he doesn't develop it, he makes it, popularizes it as an anti-clipping, anti-counterfeiting measure. And also a, a, the designs become more complex in order to uh, thwart counterfeiters um, as well, correct? That's absolutely right. And he also kept the designs uh, very secret. And mm. one of the, well, there were two main things that he did. One was to increase efficiency at the Mint. So he did all these time and motion studies so that all the people working there had to work incredibly hard, which meant that the turnover of coins was far higher and the presses were going for like 20 hours a day to get this massive job done. So that made him very unpopular with the workers. Mm. And the other reason he became unpopular was because he prosecuted criminals absolutely ferociously. He even hired some of his staff to dress up and infiltrate criminal gangs and then he sent people to Newgate prison which is he did not want to go to Newgate prison and quite a few of them were hanged so he was absolutely ferocious about that as well as ruthlessly efficient yeah so I was was his interest in the mint um we'll get to I think there's a political interest in the mint that he has um but did he have a was it he's an alchemist um he's got a thing for gold 
Is that, yes. is, is that, and silver too, for that matter. So is that, is that, do you think that's part of his interest in the mint? Is there some sort well, of, uh, some sort of, it like, certainly, you know, it certainly came in incredibly useful because yes. every, every, he had to run the mint like a business. And that meant a check was kept on whoever the master of the mint was. The goldsmith's company kept a check to make sure that the amount of gold in the coins didn't fall below a certain level. Because coins aren't pure gold or pure silver, uh, because that, they would be far too soft to use as coins. So you have to put another metal in. Uh, but then there's legal limits about the percentage of the other metal that can be in there. And, of course, it's in Newton's interest to make the level of that other metal as high as possible, because then he makes more profit, and he was paid a fee for every coin that was minted. Hmm. But then the goldsmiths are there to check uh, that he's... Uh, he and the mint are not cheating the country, and that the gold does come, uh, does meet a certain standard. And there was one year, there was a colossal argument. There was an annual ceremony, uh, which still happens, a very British ceremony called the Ceremony of the Picks. Picks is spelled P Y X. And the Picks is a special box that all year round a sample of coins is collected at random and put in this big chest. And then it was rowed up the Thames from the Tower of London up to Westminster. And they had this big test uh, to see whether the gold in the coins matched the gold in a standard plate. And that is a chemical procedure. And that was what he was very well qualified to do because of his alchemical mm -hmm. skills. He knew all about melting metal and how, how to put in different quantities. So all his chemical skills certainly came in extremely useful. But of course, metaphorically, the idea that he's making gold coins is also very nice as well. Yeah, it is. Um, so let's talk about the. There's a political reason why he would be interested in working at the mint, and we don't think of Newton as a political politician. Oh. But he was a he was a member of Parliament for two terms as a as representing Cambridge, uh, I believe. So yeah, he was very much a he had, he was a political actor, and he had political passions. So how did they coincide with his work at the mint? So he was a very strong supporter of the Whig Party and the glorious revolution of 1688 when the absolutist monarchy of the of Charles II um, and James was overthrown and um, was, the political system was made far more similar to what it is today of a constitutional monarchy where we do have a monarch who is nominally the head of the country, but far more power lay uh, within, the, within the government uh, than it had done before 1688. And Newton very, very strongly supported that. He was also very much in favour of protectionist taxes. So he wanted to prevent expensive imports of silk and um, jewellery coming in from places like China and India. So he put huge, recommend, strongly recommended putting huge taxes on all those imported luxury goods. And that meant that local artisans in London and throughout England uh, could manufacture our own products and sell them far more cheaply. So that was a great boost to the uh, English manufacturing system. And to trading ships and to... Uh... Uh, yes, Oh yeah, I mean, we, I mean, Britain then was just at the beginning of building itself up as the centre of a great empire, and we were importing our material from all over the world. We, we were, um, we were importing stuff from all over the world, and of course, we were very 
our economy depended on the international triangular trade. So we would send over uh, products such as woven cotton or else guns to West Africa. And the going rate was roughly for one gun, you could buy an African captive. And then all these uh, prisoners were kept in a large dungeon underneath a big fortress on the west coast of Africa. And then they all filed out through a door that was called the door of no return. And they filed through that door into the ships, the transport ships that took them for the middle passage across to the Americas, where they uh, worked down silver mines, they worked on plantations. And then the raw um, products such as tobacco or sugar or silver were exported from America over to Europe, particularly to Britain. We were one of the highest consumers of sugar in the whole of Europe. And so that triangular trade was what kept the British economy alive. And so Newton was implicit in that. I mean, he wasn't singularly guilty, but he was complicit in keeping that triangular system going, which involved enslaved peoples from Africa working under absolutely appalling conditions in the Americas. And, and in a way, the Tower of London is at the heart of this. So we should say the Tower of London is, is where the mint is located. There's a zoo there, but it's also at the heart of this. Uh, it's right there in between the city, the d- developing financial power of the city of London, and looking down into the pool of the Thames and seeing all this hundreds, even perhaps thousands of ships that are now coming into London bearing every, everything from around the world, uh, gold, sugar, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and it, it was absolutely, the tower was at the center of everything. And also there wasn't just one mint, there was the London mint, which was physically located between the fortifications of the tower, but there were also subsidiary mints dotted around the country. And in particular, there were mints in Scotland and there, were mints, there was a mint in Dublin. I'm so, surprised. So this is, you've just described, this is the beginning of sort of the first um, commercial revolution, consumer revolution in, yes. in English-speaking history. Um, maybe in world history. No, no, not world history, but certainly in, in English-speaking history. Um, Newton was a consumer. Uh, what things did he consume? What did he acquire? Well, when he died, the inventory of his possessions covered a a vellum scroll that was 17 feet long. And reading it is quite extraordinary. There's obviously lots of books. You'd expect lots of books. But there's also masses and masses of plates and cutlery and silver candlesticks and lots of uh, pictures of himself. But I think my favourite thing when I was reading the inventory he had two silver chamber pots. I, I've and given a, more thought to Newton's silver <laughs> chamber pots over the last week than I ever expected to in my life. Yes, right? I, 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 it's. I, I try to think that is probably the ultimate way of 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 squirreling away your wealth. I suppose. I mean, at least in colonial America, everything's silver because there is no coinage, um, yeah. and so people take anytime you get silver coinage, you put it into a candlestick. Or a chamber pot um, for when times go, just to have it around, you know, to keep it, to keep the silver. Uh, Newton doesn't have that excuse, although that might be an old habit I doubt, in English culture. Um, you know, it's a. I thought, does it, does does the silver chamber pot have an antibacterial property? Um, <laughs> is there less of a stink uh, while men are urinating into the silver chamber pot around the dining table? I mean, it's 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 interesting. But but um, but the inventory and also some of the records that he kept of his weekly expenditure, they all show that he did 
do quite a bit of entertaining. And when uh, when scientific visitors came from all over Europe or o- over Britain, of course they did go to the Royal Society, but a lot of the entertaining of scientific visitors was done in New- Newton's house. It's not like nowadays where you go off to work and you have a laboratory and a university desk and everything else. A lot of what we would call business or work or scientific transactions and scientific experiments were taking place inside people's homes. So Isaac Newton, as president of the Royal Society, as master of the mint, he needed to have a very luxurious uh, home. And he was located in Leicester Square, a very fashionable place, much nicer than the Tower of London. And um, so that was where he did a lot of his work and he needed to impress people. And he seems to have had a rather... Say opulent taste, but refined taste. Even I mean, down to the silk—not not silk, the pseudo silk, British-made uh, cloth, scarlet around his bed. I mean, this he, is he. This is this is not where he's hopefully entertaining people, legendarily at least. Um, uh, but this is, he he has a sort of he has a he has a, an, an eye. It would seem. Well, uh, crimson was certainly his favorite uh, color. If you go to, um, there's a business college in Massachusetts where the Babson Business College, where Isaac Newton's front parlor, his study, has been transported from London over to America and it has been recreated on the third floor of the um, the (laughs) college. So it's a very strange experience. You're sort of out in the, right at the end of the T going out from Boston and you go up to the third floor in the elevator and you cross the corridor and you open the door and you're in the early 18th century and there's the red velvet curtains and there's Newton's desk and the fireplace and his picture above the wall. It's a really, really eerie experience. But if you live anywhere near Massachusetts, I strongly recommend it. I, I, I had no idea that that, yeah. that existed. It sounds so yeah. surreal. So yeah. he, he so he does he makes a splash when he buys things and, and he it looks things look good. I mean, this is not yeah. this is far yeah. from this idea of this reclusive uh, mathematical mouse in his Cambridge borough. Well, he has to impress his foreign visitors. And I don't know to what extent Catherine Barton was involved in buying things for his house. She had her own rooms in the house, but the inventory shows that the furnishings for Newton's bedroom were much more valuable than the furnishings for um, her bedroom. Mm-hmm. So it's... Uh, yeah, he does seem to have been indulging his taste. The special cloth um, is called Haratine, yeah. and it's one of the cloths that was made in, in Britain, in the Midlands, to replicate the silk and other valuable uh, products that were coming in from India and China. So the idea was to undercut the price of those imports and produce lookalikes, produce replicas. So he's, he's a good... Uh mercantilist and uh, absolutely he's living up to his own policy he abides by uh, his own tariffs exactly Um, so uh he eventually becomes rather wealthy uh uh, even though he loses he must have lost an immense amount in the south sea bubble but just a few when he dies he's how rich is he well in uh in um, 18th century money, he's got £32,000. It's very difficult to translate money. So what I did, and I don't think anyone else has ever done this before, I just looked up and I found the wealth at death 
of some other very, very famous people in the 18th century. And Newton is right near the top of that table. He's not at the very top. But for example, his wealth when he died was twice that of Handel. Um, It's less than Garrick, the actor. It's far, far more than people like Samuel Johnson Mm. and Alexander Pope and other literary people. So that table... Gives, just gives an indication mm-hmm. that he was he was he was pretty flush when he died, and he's doing it by uh, not just by his salary but by his no. investments. So he invests he positively invests in company like the South Sea Company and also the Indi- East India Company. He was a major founding investor in the East India Company, and both those companies dealt in enslaved peoples, and he must have known that. Um, but they were they were very profitable companies, or at least initially the uh, they both were. The South Sea Company was not so profitable in the long run. When he made the what now seems a classic mistake, he bought shares in the uh, South Sea Company. He watched the price go up, and he did absolutely the right thing. He sold, and he made a profit. But then he saw that the price was going up even further, and he did what you're not meant to do. He bought in at a higher price than he'd sold for, and he watched it, and it went up and up and up, and then suddenly the bubble burst, and it completely collapsed. And he was not the only person to lose a lot of money, and in their defence, nothing like this had ever happened before. I mean, it was a new experience, the whole project of investing in a company and funding the government's expense through shares uh, was, was a new sort of venture, so nobody had any experience of it. So let's briefly talk about Newtonian networks and Newtonian acolytes. Um, yes. You already, already touched the fact that science is conducted at the dinner table, um, and science is conducted by people talking to one another. Um, hmm. We can use the term Republic of Letters, but one way or the other, this now speaking of networks is very fashionable, uh, following our own cultural preoccupations. Uh, but you know, it's it's like sort of like um, it's a little irritating. They knew all about networks because they use networks all the time. They just uh, they don't have to make a big deal out of it. Uh, one of the networks is called the Masons. Uh, oh, the, Royal, right. the Royal Society is a network. Political parties are networks. Joint stock companies are networks. And then there's like letter writing and all the rest of it. So let's can we just touch on the importance of these networks to Newton's the second well it's extremely important the first half of his life and disseminating his ideas across Europe. But what's the importance of these networks to the sort of the, his London life? Uh, I think everything in England operated by patronage. And his main patron, patron was the Earl of Halifax. And the details are a bit sketchy, but what's very, very clear is that the Earl of Halifax had an affair with Newton's niece, Catherine Barton. He left her a lot of money in his will. So the Earl of Halifax was in a position to give Isaac Newton favours, like, for example, arranging that he should be knighted and getting the job as warden of the Mint in in the first place. Newton, in his turn, was able to dispense favours to other people who were less influential than him. Uh, His connection with the Freemasons is through his experimental assistant, a man called John Desaguliers. He he was a Huguenot. So at the end of the uh, 17th century, the law was changed on the continent and a lot of Huguenots found themselves uh, under very, very difficult circumstances and a lot of them came over to England And that was when the word refugee 
was invented. So Desert Goulier was one of the first refugees, and we welcomed them. Our policy was different. We welcomed uh, these refugees because they had a lot of skills. They, um, a lot of them were responsible for silk weaving and printing, and Desert Goulier himself was a very uh, skilled engineer. He got a degree from Oxford University, and he was responsible, for example, for designing Westminster Bridge. Uh, he invented lots of fountains and fireworks and steam engines, and he set up a school, and people came from all over Europe to learn the principles of Newtonian mechanics as Desaguliers taught them in his school. So it, it all depended on who you knew and who you didn't know. And that, going back to the picture, Hogarth himself was a mason. Uh, almost all the adults in that picture are also Freemasons. Uh, Newton himself doesn't seem to have been a Freemason, but a very high percentage of people in the Royal Society were. And I know there's a lot of rude jokes are made about Freemasons, but it really it was a sort of like they offered wonderful networking opportunities where you should get to meet other people. You could have a private discussion in a corner. You could you could set up schemes. It's unfortunately one of the reasons why we don't know a lot about what happened in the 18th century because people weren't sending emails. <laughs> they weren't writing letters. They were talking to each other. Yeah. And, of course, that was the whole point, was to keep it all secret and arrange things. So you can only infer. Um, you, you often can't don't have direct evidence of what was happening. Um, what are the role of people like Desaguilet and uh, other these Newtonian acolytes? So Newton has there's there's several of them that start to cluster around him, like you know filings attracted to a magnet, and they're they are really like John Conduit, I suppose, um, and they're really they they seem to be key in promoting the religion of Newton or the. That is absolutely a very good way to put it. I mean, they're, they're like they're like uh, publicity people. Newton himself yeah. was not well. He said he wasn't interested in reaching a, a wider public. He said, "I deliberately made the maths in my book very very difficult because I didn't want to be troubled by little smatterers in mathematics." So he left <laughs> lots of manuscripts. He left this incredibly complicated book that hardly anybody could understand, and a whole army of other people. So translated, if you like, translated the maths and translated the words into uh, terms that other people could understand. Um, and then there was a great uh, Dutch innovation of making lots of little mechanical toys of uh, cones rolling up a hill and things and wobbly men that won't fall over and that sort of thing. And they machines like that were used for demonstrating the principles of Newtonian mechanics. And Desaguliers was one of the key people to do that because he translated books and he ran this school and he trained a lot of uh, Newtonian lecturers who then spread out across Europe and disseminated Newton's ideas. So let's talk about, um, as we move towards the end, um, three things. Uh, Newton is a hater. Newton is a courtier. And Newton is an imperialist. Um, I would say, uh, speaking as someone who's half Italian, that Newton was almost Italian in his ability to hate and to create new enemies. Um, it's really, really impressive. It seems he's one of these people that when he's lacking an enemy or a fight, 
he creates one. Everyone knows these people from college, church, synagogue, temple. Um, there's all, uh, Masons, I suppose. Um, there's always a person like that who has to be starting a fight and has to be in engaged in hate against someone. And Newton seems to be one of those people. So could you talk about that? It's- well, he does seem to be one of those people. But on the other hand, it's a cliche. It takes two to make an argument. And, well, uh, I, I wondered about that because he seems to like give the argument to someone else. And yeah. then th- and then anyway. Yeah. So he had three main rivals. And I presume there's all sorts of lesser people that we never ever hear about. But his three main rivals were Robert Hooke, uh, John Flamsteed and Gottfried Leibniz. And there was no concept of intellectual copyright. So people were pinching ideas from each other the whole time. And all three of them accused Newton of doing that. And in all three of them, he denied it and retaliated. Robert Hooke, uh, um, he was an experimenter at the Royal Society. He accused Newton of stealing his ideas about optics and his ideas about gravity. And I think one of the nastiest quips I've ever seen is that famous remark, uh, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. That's often attributed to Newton. It was actually quite a commonplace saying that had been around since the 12th century and Mm -hmm. what it referred to was standing on the shoulders of saints. Isaac Newton wrote that in reply to a letter by Hook accusing him of plagiarism. And the... There's a doubly nasty aspect to Newton's reply. One is the obvious one. Well, Robert Hooke, if I if I'd wanted to plagiarize from someone, I would have chosen someone more eminent and more worthy than you. That's the sort of the surface bit. But then, when you appreciate that Robert Hooke had some sort of terrible spinal deformity, right. and he was a very small man, uh, he was also very impoverished compared with Newton. And since he was about 16, he'd had some uh, problem with his spine and he'd been slowly be bent, been bending over so that by the time he died, he was, his was sort of face was pointed towards the ground. So there was this very physical, physically disabled person. And Newton's saying, if I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. So that's a pretty nasty remark. Yeah, it really is. Uh, the Leibniz... Uh, Leibniz... The Le- well, that's a, that's famous. Let's let's go talk about Flamsteed because you have interesting things to say about that. Um, he's the astronomer royal. Flamsteed was the first astronomer royal, yeah. and the observatory at Greenwich, where the zero line of longitude first now is, that was first set up uh, by Charles II. He had a one of his uh, lovers was a French woman, and she said, "Look, the French king has set up an observatory in Paris. You'd better fund one for us." Uh, for your your country. And so Charles II provided the money for the Royal Observatory and Flamsteed was the first um, astronomer royal. He had a very, very small salary. He collected masses and masses and masses of data and of, of observations. And I can really sympathise with him that he, he wanted to own those observations. He wanted to put them all in a book and make, make some profit. Isaac Newton came along and said, nope, all those observations belong to me. I need them for vindicating my theory of gravity. And Newton was far more powerful than Flamsteed. And so he managed to squeeze him out. And as you said with um, earlier, when we talked about Leibniz and his and his system, um, Newton has the Royal Society, has beck and call. He's a very, he makes himself into a, the most 
um, authoritarian uh, president of the Royal Society. I would think of even Hans Sloan, dear Dr. Hans Sloan and his botanizing and all the rest of that stuff. He, Newton, he shivs him in the back, you know. Oh, and, absolutely. You know, I mean, I mean there's, there's lots of people that he, he pushes out of the way to, 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 to get his, his will. But also Leibniz, Leibniz was pretty vengeful too. They didn't just argue about calculus. No. They argued about the role of God in the world. And Isaac Newton said that God could intervene in the world by sending in live matter on comets. And, and Leibniz, Leibniz said, I don't understand the Newtonians. Their God is like a very, very sloppy watchmaker who can't even wind up a clock and to get it ticking for eternity. So, I mean, that's a pretty good remark. I mean, Leibniz was certainly capable of giving it back. Le- Leibniz, yeah, he was. And that brings us to Newton as courtier, because Leibniz is is very connected to, well, uh, his, the tutor, more or less, of Car- and he's very connected to the Hanoverian court. And yes. in 1715, uh, Newton, as a Whig, is probably delighted when Parliament, for the second time, shows its power by selecting whatever damn monarch they want to select that's what it means to have a sovereign parliament and in this case it's the hanoverians they could have chosen they could have chosen a frenchman if they wanted to that's that how how you know strong parliament was but they chose the hanoverians um and caroline of ansbach is leibniz's protege and but newton then begins to pay court as well well, he, that, again, that works both ways. Uh, Caroline van Spart was a very, very clever man. Uh, sorry, Caroline <laughs> van Spart was a very, very clever woman, and she was far cleverer than any of the men in the family that she married into. So her that, husband that is a was, very low bar, but yes, she, <laughs> she's <laughs> yes. Okay, so she she was married to the future George II. And as soon as she came over here, she started setting up an intellectual court and she really wanted to show that she was on the side of the English, that she'd renounced all her German antecedents. And so she cultivated the glitterati of London society. And Isaac Newton was one of those. So it was in both their interests for her to invite him to her court. It was good for her because it made her look loyal to the English uh, people and it was valuable for newton because he could go back to the royal society and say oh yes i was just having this conversation with princess caroline the other day and this is what she said so it was again it was this networking and it was to both their advantages uh that newton should be prominent at the court of george and caroline um newton uh, we've discussed the ways in which newton is an imperialist for britain hmm. um but there's a way in which, uh, and uh, that Newton is also an imperialist for science. Yes, I uh, think there's a sort of metaphorical way, and I think I think there's it hinges on three basic factors. The first is that Newtonianism lends itself to centrality. I mean, in principle, every object is attracting every every other object, but the way it manifests itself, we think about uh, the Earth going around the Sun, the Moon going around the Earth, and then there were a lot of analogies in the 18th century um, about citizens revolving around the king, about inside the home, all the members of the family would revolve around the father. So it's a, and then there's that delightful song, almost our anthem, uh, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Um, 
Britons never, never, never shall, shall be slaves. But it's this idea that Britannia rules the waves. It's that Britain is going to be supreme. And so the whole of Newtonian uh, mechanics lends itself to a model of centrality with Britain at the hub. Uh, the second way um, is this idea of universality. Mm-hmm. So this idea that wherever you are in the world, the laws of gravity, or in the universe, the laws of gravity are exactly the same. Now, that Newton never managed to prove that. That was an assumption. So then when he got observations from around the world that seemed to contradict that principle, then... Mm-hmm. I'm putting it crudely, he threw the observations out because it's a fundamental assumption that the universe is uniform. And actually, if you don't assume that, you can't really make any physical laws at all. It would be very difficult to anyway. So so that idea of universality is central. And then there's um, the third one, this idea that everything can be expressed mathematically. That wasn't really the case, uh, certainly under the Greeks, un- under the Aristotelian re- regime, and it slowly, slowly changed. And when Newton published the Principia, he called it the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. So he brought maths right into natural philosophy. And nowadays, we assume that everything can be expressed mathematically. You have mathematical models for inside our bodies, for national economies, for road transport systems, for global warming, for the way that viruses travel around the world. There's this assumption that everything in principle can be expressed quantitatively. So I think those are three ways in which that Newtonian model has just taken us over in ways that we're not really always aware of. We just assume that that's, that's how things are. And they're mm-hmm. very mu- it's very much an assumption of that's how Newtonian things are. You, um, I, I, just to, as we start to wrap up here, you, you discuss um, the lecture of the uh, Russian physicist Boris Hessen in 1931. Yes. And uh, you say that in many ways, uh, you uh, are just, uh, that his, his speech underpins the argument of your book. Could you describe his, yes. his theory? So, and, 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 and Yeah, so what happened were in the early 20th century, there, there were three ways that Newton was sort of thrown off his pedestal. Uh, one was Einstein's announcement of relativity theory. And then there was the thing that we've talked about, about uh, Maynard Keynes showing how important Newton's life and theories of an alchemist were to his um, ideas about physics. And then the third one was there was an international meeting of historians of science that was held in London in the 1930s. And Boris Hessen, Soviet Marxist, he came and gave um, a talk saying to, to what extent Newton's physics is embedded in the capitalist system. So he talked, for example, about the way that uh, Newton's theories developed out of the need for ballistics. And I suppose what I've talked about is the way that Newton's theories and Newton's success were both bound, all bound up in mercantilism and imperialism and the Whig reinforcement of the capitalist system. Um, you divide the book you have a very interesting structure for the book and i wanted to i had to ask you how did you come to the structure of the book and uh what does it mean because i i i i realize now having written my uh first book that uh 
it might not mean anything else to anyone else, but there are 19 chapters and, and I intended it that way. Um, mm. And there, there's so I, I give a lot of thought to structure whenever I read and, and you obviously did as well. So what does the structure of your book? Yeah, I think structure is crucially important. I once wrote, wrote a book called um, Science of 4,000 Year History. And I could only do that when I'd had the idea of having the structure of seven sections of seven chapters within each section. And once I'd, <laughs> once I'd got that magic number seven, I, oh. I was, okay, so this I've divided into three acts. Um, I mean, I, it's like all metaphors. It works on several levels. Uh, obviously, most obviously, the, the picture by Hogarth, is a picture about a play. It's also, we're looking into the picture, we're looking at the audience, we're, we're watching a scene, we're watching a play within a play, if you like. It's also obviously um, a reference to As You Like It and All the World's a Stage and All the Men and Women Merely Players. So it's obviously a reference to that. But the idea of nature as theatre um, had been introduced long before Shakespeare came along and said, "All the world's a stage." This, this idea that that there's some the grand scene of nature and we only see the surface of it. And I suppose I also wanted to emphasise the idea that this is my story about Newton. It's not the definitive version of Newton. It's how it's the the drama that I've chosen to construct around his life, and I've constructed it in three acts. And I use the picture to help me do that. Um, I'd like to conclude with uh, you have a, it's a great epilogue, and you use the the perpendicular personal pronoun a lot, uh, which I appreciated. You say I, I, this, this, that. You're discussing in sort of your relation to Newton, previous scholars, and uh, what you've thought about, how you've thought about things, and also um, the uh, the task of a historian as you see it. So uh, uh, can, can I just? I yeah. think it's very important, in particular for historians of science, to introduce themselves into their own text. Because one of the big things that historians of science do is analyse scientific documents, scientific arguments, and try and pick apart this impression of objectivity. Scientists, when they write articles, usually don't put themselves in, in the text, and they try to present the text as if it were true. Historians of science show that, no, science is subjective like everything else. So therefore, I think we should always write our own text in the first person to show that this is our interpretation and that it is subjective. Could you begin on uh, page 220 with that, that paragraph? I'm really, really glad that you chose this passage because I really <laughs> like it. Okay, so it's in the epilogue. Um, there are always new ways of interpreting familiar facts and there are always new facts to be unearthed. That is why being a historian is so fascinating. On the other hand... To embark on a historical research project is to enter a bewildering Borgesian labyrinth. There are dead ends and there are spurious interconnections, but there is no definite goal or advanced destination. Rewriting the past entails venturing along paths that nobody else has followed, leaving the security of well-established analyses. The thread-guiding Theseus away from the Minotaur has broken, and the birds have eaten the trail of breadcrumbs leading Hansel and Gretel back to the woodcutter's cottage. Well, my guest today has been Patricia Ferrer. 
She's the author of Life After Gravity, Isaac Newton's London Career. Patricia Farah, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for asking me such wonderful questions. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.